Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is the Bill Press Show live at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Good morning and welcome to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Wednesday morning. We've got a great show for you. And I'm here with the, the help of my friends, and that includes Peter Ogburn. Hello, hello. Friends is a strong word. I think we're co-workers this morning. Oh. I'm kidding, of frosty. course. I'm kidding, of course. Hello, friend. I didn't know Jamie was back. Oh, ooh, who? Oh, <laughs> I, I don't know. The name doesn't <laughs> ring a bell. Uh, it's been it's been a while since I've seen you. Hello. And uh, it's wonderful to see you. It's wonderful to see you, too. And uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful to be here with so much to unpack. That includes potential national emergency declaration vote, investigations upon investigations upon investigations. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty. Just a couple of other stories making news. All right. So, you know, I'm not a huge fan of CNN. I don't dislike CNN the way that Donald Trump dislikes CNN, but I got some problems with CNN. Well, they've got a bigger problem now because the National Association of Black Journalists says that they are putting CNN on watch. They put them on a, quote, special monitoring list. Because they say they are, uh, CNN, they, they, the National Association of Black Journalists cite a severe lack of black representation among the network's leadership ranks. Mm. They say that CNN has no black employees that report to CNN President Jeff Zucker. And it also says they have no black executive producers, no black vice presidents, and no senior vice presidents on the news side that are people of color. So the National Association of Black Journalists are saying, you got to do better. You got to do better. Everyone ought to diversify their newsrooms that absolutely. we can all agree on. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's a there's an internet debate raging uh, about mayonnaise. Do you like mayonnaise? I don't dislike it. Right. I'll put it on like a sandwich. Yeah. I'm not like loading up on mayonnaise. I'm the same way. Yeah. Mayonnaise is Some fine. Some people have a visceral reaction to mayonnaise. No, I, yeah, don't. I don't like I don't appreciate the visceral reaction to mayonnaise. You can either 
like people who love it or hate, but there is the correct answer for what is the best kind of mayonnaise, and that's Duke's mayonnaise. Okay. All right. However, <laughs> however, Heinz is introducing some new uh, items to the market. Now, last year they announced that they were going to release mayo chop. Mayo you, chop. You know what mayo chop is? It's, I don't can't say I know that. Think about it. Mayo. Ketchup and mayo? Ketchup and mayonnaise. Oh. Yeah, a lot of people call it fancy sauce or fry sauce, but they, they bottled it. And you could buy a mix, a blend, if you will, of mayonnaise and ketchup. Well, yesterday they announced that it is, that was so successful that they are releasing two new items. Mayo Q. Mayo. Mayo Q. Barbecue and barbecue mayo. sauce Ew. and mayonnaise. Okay. No, no, it's, I've I've okay. I've had something like that before, and it's not as bad as it sounds. Okay. And mayo must. Mustard and mayo. Mustard and mayo. That one makes a little more sense. That's I the natural follow-on to mayo chub. Yeah, mayo chub, right? Like you want a little <laughs> right. mayonnaise and mustard on your sandwich. Why not put them both on there? You could just put them on as one thing. Mayo must. Anyway, right. uh, they are going to be rolled out regionally first uh, in Texas. Of course. And then they say that it should be in, st- of course, it's in Texas, right? And uh, it should be available at stores nationwide in April. Okay. Are you going to buy any of this? I-, I can't say I will, Peter. <laughs> you, know what I- you know what I think is I'll a better idea? I'll take your word idea? for it. What? Well, I'm not going to buy it. Okay. Uh, you have your mayonnaise and you have your mustard. And you can just have them live independently of each other. You don't like have to join them. Like we've been doing them. ever since they've existed. Yeah. This is a problem that didn't need to be fixed. You know, Heinz is all about... Heinz should be more about the shoulda versus coulda. You know, sure, yeah. you can put this together. But should you? I, I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure. <laughs> I'm, it's a no for me is what I'm trying to say. Okay, good. This is the Bill Press Show. Good morning and welcome to the Bill Press Show. We have a great deal to talk about as usual. And of course, we have a plethora of potential investigations also brimming in Congress as Democrats are eyeing the president, his family, his businesses and his entire inner circle. I think the list was something like 80 plus targets for Democrats to go after uh, and take a deeper dive into with respect to all of the relevant committees uh, that they now control in the House of Representatives. You have everything from the president's ties to Moscow, uh, as well as any potential collusion within the 2016 campaign, as well as the hush money payments that were made to women uh, with intention of silencing them from speaking out about their alleged affairs with Trump to all kinds of things that, frankly, because there's so much to investigate, don't get talked about as much. And that includes, of course, uh, conflicts of interest within the White House, security clearances, and the fact that Jared Kushner and Ivanka Trump, for reasons yet to be known, have high top-level security clearances, apparently involved some interference from the president himself. Misuse of taxpayer dollars by cabinet officials. I mean, Peter, the list goes on and on and on. 
And some people are saying, including the president, that this is just Democrats immediately going on the attack, that they're not interested in legislating. But this is something they've probably been sounding the alarm over for more than two years. They just couldn't do anything about it until now. That's the point. That's that's the exact point. Look, I mean, this is what Congress should be doing. This is Congress's job. And, you know, the the, uh, Donald Trump had plenty of cover from a Republican House and a Republican Senate uh, for the first two years of his presidency. And now Congress is doing its job. Is there definitely going to be some sort of resolution or some sort of smoking gun that shows that Donald Trump did this and therefore he broke the law? I don't know. Maybe there won't be, right? Maybe there won't be. But the point is you need to actually find out if that's the case. Right. And in the marathon uh, testimony uh, of Michael Cohen, the president's former personal attorney on Capitol Hill last week, we heard a litany of allegations against the president and his inner circle uh, implicating the president, not just in what we already knew, the hush money payment to Stormy Daniels, the adult film actress who uh, claimed to have had an affair with Trump in 2006 and that she was paid off to prevent her from speaking ahead of the election about her affair, but also potential bank fraud, insurance fraud, other fraudulent activity involving the president's charity. Uh, Cohen said, and remember, this is under oath, that the president did, in fact, inflate his assets to insurance companies and to try and get a bank loan. Uh, This is something that is now going to be... uh, investigated if it's not already being investigated by prosecutors in the Southern District of New York. And I think that that actually is perhaps what's most interesting because, you know, with respect to the Russia investigation, it could be that there isn't a smoking gun insofar as there haven't already been smoking guns. I mean, some people might say that the Trump Jr. emails were a smoking gun. The if it's what you say, I love it when he was told of an effort by the Russians to uh, help elect his father and that whole meeting at Trump Tower was set up. You know, the Roger Stone WikiLeaks could be a smoking gun. Um, There's there's certainly a lot there. Paul Manafort, of course, um, and his meeting with uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, guy with known ties to Russian intelligence, randomly sharing internal polling data for reasons unbeknownst to us. But all of that aside, some people might say that we don't know what's going to be in Mueller's report. So... You know, is there going to be something that directly puts the chain back toward the president that directly ties the president to the contacts between his campaign and Moscow that puts him, you know, at at the in the at the heart of what is possibly collusion? And that that may or may not exist. We're going to find out a final report. But I think that that is something that might well fall along much more political lines, because in many ways, that's sort of the way that the groundwork has been laid, that. People are going to believe what they will about the Mueller report. Right. And, you know, it, it's it's and some people might just be further hardened into their corners and maybe independent minded people might just be frustrated and say, this is not what we elected someone, you know, elected this guy for. We haven't seen any form of actual governance and they're fed up with it. But the New York, the Southern District of New York investigation has no limits. There's no mandate. There's no. Uh, scope that they have to stay within, as is the case with Mueller. And it's very clearly criminal activity. It's, you know, there's no, well, was it collusion? How do you define it? Is it, was it actually criminal or is it just, you know, unethical? It's actually, you know, you either did or did not commit 
all kinds of fraudulent activity with your business, with your charity. I think so I think that's a really important point to make, right? Because what the House Democrats are doing now uh, under Jerry Nadler, who who leads this, uh, is we're just looking to see, we're just looking to find some facts, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, uh, it is sort of a fishing expedition. Uh, they might land a big one while they're you know looking into all this stuff. They might not. And they, they could go down all these different paths and avenues at the end of the day, just be like, yeah, you know, there's there's really nothing there that we can prove. The Southern District of New York is a completely different story, a completely different story, because, as you say, it's black and white. Either this is criminal activity or it is not. Right. You it, know? it either is. And the reason I'm, I want to read uh, off of a quick uh, poll that released uh, from Quinnipiac yesterday um, on Tuesday and, you know, according to this poll, 50% of the people trust Michael Cohen more than they trust President Trump. Only 35% believe Trump over Cohen. So with respect to the allegations made by his former personal attorney, who had unparalleled knowledge, by the way, of the president's personal and professional dealings. Um, yes, you don't say. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, he, yes, he's a convicted criminal. He's about to begin in May a three-year sentence um, for tax fraud, bank fraud, for lying to prosecutors. By the way, well, he was to supposed to go to jail yesterday, but he was still back up testifying behind closed doors. Well, it was doors. delayed. Yeah, 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 it was delayed. Originally, he was originally supposed to go yesterday. Um, but but the American people are more inclined to believe Cohen's accounts, and so as more comes from leads that he put out there in his testimony, there's certainly a lot more that the American public might take a look at and say, well, this is essentially now evidence of what Cohen was alleging in his appearance before Congress. And what's also interesting is that the number of people who think that President Trump committed crimes before entering office is very high. Uh, 64% believe that President Trump in his life as a private citizen before taking office in January of 2017, committed crimes. Uh, well, they did not get into details on what those crimes were, but only 45% believe that he committed crimes while in office. So that's a bit interesting because you have a pretty big discrepancy there. And I think that kind of goes back to what I was saying about why the Southern District of New York investigation is much more compelling and also much more problematic for Trump because, you know, the crime potential crimes that were committed... Um, in office, which the public is still torn about, it's a lot more subjective to people. I mean, you know, you might step step back and say, no, that's obstruction of justice. But then, you know, you get into intentionality and that's how the political kind of debate around it and Republicans playing cover for it. That's the kind of impact that it has that, well, is it a crime? It depends on who you ask, right? That's the way that a lot of that falls versus all that the, the allegations that are under investigation that speak more to widespread corruption the ones that are under investigation at the by the prosecutors in the southern district of new york like you said like we were just saying that's fairly black and white but but also there is a point to be made that a lot of this behavior while it might not be illegal is certainly unethical oh of course and the most recent story that we saw yesterday was this about ivanka trump's Security clearance. Now, we already heard the story about Jared Kushner. The CIA uh, told Donald Trump, hey, th we don't think he should get a security clearance. We have some concerns, yada, yada, yada. Donald Trump said he didn't care. He pushed forward for it, pushed forward with it anyway. 
uh, apparently the same thing happened with Ivanka Trump. You don't Donald say. Donald Trump pushed to get Ivanka Trump a security clearance. And I, I didn't play this clip for you earlier, but I want to play this now because this is from the other night. Uh, Jerry Nadler, after the uh, uh, this probe was opened, uh, he was on CNN, and he was asked specifically about Ivanka Trump because she was not mentioned in his in this probe that he opened. But he said, that door is open. She's not on the initial list. That's all we, we can say. Uh, we're also saying that uh, all the people uh, on the list have given information already to either the special counsel or the Southern District or somebody. And all we're asking for at this point is information they've already turned over so that it can be done uh, quickly and without questions of privilege. I'm just trying mm -hmm. to understand. Yes. You're saying everyone on this list has gotten requests before yes. from various places. So that might be one way you sort it. Mm -hmm. But is she eventually conceivably oh, on? Conceivably, certainly. I, I can't say, but quite conceivably. Conceivably, certainly. <laughs> It's a mouthful, but, but that's that's a maybe. That's, I'm going to take that as a maybe. Yeah. I'm going to take that as a maybe. I'm going to take it as a maybe. Yeah. So now we've got this story about how Donald Trump uh, uh, broke protocol to get Grand Ivanka security. Trump to, to get Ivanka Trump a security clearance, and uh, it certainly sounds and looks unethical at best. Right, and I think that that kind of goes back to why it's important that Congress investigate. A lot of these allegations and actually the same poll I was reading from shows that a majority of Americans do support Congress investigating these matters further. So the actual investigations do have support from the American public just as a question of oversight, because, look, it may not be that they uncover what is defined as illegal activity, uh, but what they certainly will uncover is abuse of office. And, you know, it's 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 bizarre to sort of say say those words and then be like that's not technically illegal um but it's something that could make a click a case at some point um for obstruction and then of course potential impeachment proceedings down the road certainly not right now because democrats only have the house they don't have the senate and uh i think they are certainly mindful that they would need a lot more and that they don't have the actual votes in the Senate to convict. But the thing about the security clearances that's uh, important is that it's it's not really about just the fact that the president granted those clearances or forced officials to grant those clearances to his daughter and his son-in-law. You know, the president has wide latitude when it comes to security clearances it's 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 again it's unethical but he has the in the eyes of many but he has the right to do it just because that's the way that the system is set up um but what it does call into question and some democrats are calling for a criminal investigation into this issue it calls into question why exactly jared kushner was not forthcoming on his disclosure forums SF-86 is, is the name of, of uh, those forms when he was applying for his clearance. And Democrats now want to look at whether or not Jared Kushner is guilty of criminal conduct because lying on those forms is punishable by up to five years in prison. Now, I reached out to the Justice Department. Not surprisingly, there was no response. I don't think that newly minted Attorney General William Barr is going to take this up and immediately pick a fight with the president over his son-in-law and his security clearance, especially since Trump had the right right to grant it just, you know, in terms of his authority. But 
I do think the question Democrats are asking is, we knew that Jared Kushner omitted more than 100 foreign contacts on those disclosure forms. And his lawyers always maintain that it was inadvertent, that, you know, it was just an error. He has so many, you know, he had so many contacts through his own and his family's business that, look, it was an oversight. But Democrats are now saying, was it really an oversight? Because with the repeated uh, obstacles he faced in getting his clearance to the point that he needed his father-in-law to intervene, maybe it was, in fact, intentional. Now, I think it's going to be really, really difficult for them to prove intentionality because they would need documents and witnesses to corroborate. But I think where it's although, going to get... Although, let's just point out, the Trump family and the Trump administration has a history of putting dumb things that they should not be putting into writing into writing. Right. So, like, maybe there are documents. There may be. And so the (laughs) challenge is getting them, right? So the White House is trying to fight, of course, you know, the having to hand over any information to Congress and they're citing executive privilege. They're saying the president has the authority uh, to grant a security clearance. So, you know, his decision-making... Is, is almost irrelevant. If he chose to make that decision, he had the right to do so. Now, it's important to know executive privilege does not apply to everything. There's no reason why the president choosing to grant Jared Kushner security clearance, or more importantly, whether or not Jared Kushner lied while f- applying for a security clearance is protected by executive privilege. But they're going to try to claim that for everything, and it's going to set up a protracted battle in the courts. And so, yeah, it might, it's going to be like pulling teeth, essentially, to get those documents from the White House. Where it's going to get interesting, though, is if Democrats subpoena John Kelly, the former White House chief of staff, who apparently objected uh, to the president trying to give out security clearances to his family and wrote a contemporaneous memo, remember those, (laughs) to document his concerns. We saw it with James Comey, former FBI director who wrote many contemporaneous memos about his interactions with the president. But John Kelly actually is less polarizing than James Comey, if that makes sense. Now, John Kelly's polarizing in the sense that, of course, a lot of uh, Democrats and even some independent-minded voters were disappointed that, that you know, he was willing to defend a lot of the Trump administration's policies on immigration because it turned out he actually believed them or, you know, just, just very much a team player for the president, even in the face of all kinds of apparent wrongdoing. But he's not as polarizing as James Comey in the sense of of the way that the email investigation and Comey's conduct in the election is a debate for the ages. If J- if John Kelly came to Congress and said, yes, no, the president or, you know, or Jared Kushner, there was a conversation about what he should and shouldn't say on these forms or about why he wasn't getting his clearance approved. And here is exactly how the president overruled his own intelligence officials. I think most people would believe John Kelly, including Republicans in Congress. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And the other thing, the difference between, you know, like a James Comey type and John Kelly is Donald Trump sought out John Kelly. He hired him for multiple positions. Like, in in a lot of ways, Donald Trump just sort of inherited the James Comey problem. Right, right. right? Uh, This was his guy, and he served with him for quite a while. Right, as DHS secretary and then as his chief of staff. Yeah, I mean, Um, two, two years Two years. In one form or another, he reported directly to Donald Trump. And he did. And so, it'll be, and you know, retired four-star general, someone who has long had been respected for many other reasons. So 
it remains to be seen if Democrats call him up to testify, whether it's in a closed or public setting. But I think at this point, no one is off limits. Um, and on the topic of John Kelly, his uh, successor, Kirsten Nielsen, happens to be testifying this morning on Capitol Hill before the House Homeland Security Committee. She will be faced with uh, questions ranging from separations at the U.S.-Mexico border, migrant, migrant children who still have not been reunited with their parents, as well as the president's national emergency declaration, which, of course, was issued last month to circumvent Congress and build the wall on his own, uh, teeing up one battle in the courts and another in Congress. House Democrats already passed a bill to terminate the president's uh, executive order. The Senate could vote on it as soon as today. There's no vote scheduled. But there's some Republicans uh, who think that the president may have overstepped. Among them is Chuck Grassley, who is typically pretty supportive of this president. But here's what he had to say about the national emergency declaration. The president has needlessly caused himself a political and legal problem that isn't necessary. And Lamar Alexander, Republican senator from Tennessee, uh, he also sounded a similar note. Let's take a listen. If the goal is to build the wall and to build it quickly, the best way to do that, in my opinion, is to take the money that's already approved, which the president has identified, and get on with it. If he insists on a national emergency, he runs the risk of years of litigation and delay. Years of litigation and delay. So uh, we don't know exactly how this vote is going to play out. Um, Republican leaders can't say if they have the votes to hold the line. Um, There are at least a handful of Republicans who have said they will vote in favor of the House pass bill to terminate the national emergency declaration. That includes Senator Susan Collins of Maine, Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, two of the usual suspects, Uh, Rand Paul Paul. of Kentucky. And uh, Thom Phyllis from North Carolina. Bob Phyllis. Bob Phyllis. Bob Phyllis in North Carolina. Um, And those are the people who are on record. There are others who have cited grave concern over the president's declaration. I mean, you heard some of those criticisms from people like Chuck Grassley and, you know, Marco Rubio and all these people who've been out there saying that this sets a very dangerous precedent and um, they haven't decided how they'll vote. I mean, actually, Marco Rubio will probably just vote in line with the president because he always publicly deliberates and then... And then, Let's so, just be clear. I don't have the audio right off him, but we've played the audio before about Marco Rubio saying he would fight to stop the national emergency declaration. We I mean, that tape is out there. It's Marco out there. Rubio has said he would fight to stop the national emergency declaration. Well, here's your chance, Marco. Well, those tapes have been out there for other issues too, and yet somehow we always end yeah. up having the same conversation. Unless it's going to pass. And that's where maybe if you're someone like Marco Rubio and you mostly vote in line with the president, you're like, well, this is passing anyway with a number of Republicans supporting it. Therefore, I can actually more easily sign my name onto it. Oh, that's it. an adorable thought. I mean, yeah. This is not going to happen. Know, it's, it's not, not going to happen. Well, what's probably going to happen is they may actually, they may well pass it. We'll see. If they pass it, let's make, make no mistake, it'll be a stunning rebuke of the president. Now, he's going to veto it, and, and what is safe to say is that they're not going to have a veto-proof majority. Um, that, that much 
we know just by the the numbers. But I mean, you're right. I th- I think you're right. But also, you know, you mentioned the four that have already said they will vote against it, right? Yeah. Uh, Rand Paul, I think, is is pretty wishy-washy right like he he'll say he's gonna vote against it he might still vote this isn't but see this time it wasn't just him saying it i think he wrote he wrote not bad so but also and he he also introduced companion like anti-immigrant legislation just for good measure yeah yeah, yeah. just to make sure everybody knew (laughs) this wasn't there be no doubt because he thought it was a bad idea for that i'm a constitutional conservative i just don't want people to get even legal status through the normal legal processes that's look you had we just played the clips from two i think uh leaders of the republican senate the Republican Party in the Senate, uh, Chuck Grassley and Lamar Alexander, they've both been there forever, yep. uh, expressing that they don't think this is the right way to do things. Now, they'll probably still vote for it, but if you are someone who has a long career ahead of you as a Republican senator, you can maybe look at that and say, okay, well, they say it's not a great idea. I got to answer for this for generations to come. Maybe I just vote no. Maybe. Maybe. I feel like we've just seen this movie I know. before. I feel and like we're Charlie always Brown. like, is this the moment where Republicans say enough is enough? And I think a few of them, more of them, to be yeah, fair, more yeah. of them on this issue. Collectively, they will. Collectively, not. they will. Veto proof majority. I mean, the only thing that achieved a veto proof majority from Republicans in Congress was sanctions against Russia. To, to punish Moscow for its meddling in the election. And that was in the first year of the Trump presidency, forcing his hand to enforce sanctions that his administration was trying to block from being implemented. I mean, that was the only thing, and that was a fairly uh, easy one uh, for, for most members of Congress to sign on to. Something as polarizing as immigration and the president's authority and yada, 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 and this idea that there's a crisis at the border. I think that's something where, yes, some Republicans will certainly break, uh, but I, I, I'm not sure that we aren't just headed for a presidential veto. But even if it got to his desk for him to veto, it is still a major rejection yeah. of uh, the decision he made since Republicans do still control the Senate. So it's divided Congress, but they would be united in saying, you overstepped, Mr. President. So... I mean, that we'll see what happens. Again, no vote on the calendar at this moment. Um, it could happen as early as today, but it's expected to take place this week. Uh, Kirsten Nielsen, as I said, the DHS secretary, will separately be testifying before the House Homeland Security Committee. Certainly peppered with questions one can expect will be peppered with questions about, you know, the decision-making here, the constitutional grounds, and whether or not how they can actually prove that there is in fact an emergency at the border not to mention the fact that there's still hundreds of children who are still separated from their parents um something that we almost oh right you know forget to mention now but what's important about that story which was one of the biggest scandals and remains one of the biggest scandals I, frankly i think the biggest scandal of this administration um is that not only were there hundreds of parents who were not reunited by the government because they had no plan to reunite these children with their parents now those same parents, some of them, are showing up at the border again. They've come back after having been deported because they want their children back. So that is a very compelling story to follow. What will the government do now that these people are back at their border saying, give us back our kids? 
On that note, we're going to take a short break, and I'm excited uh, for the other side because my colleague Lauren Gambino will be joining us next. So stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Wednesday morning. And joining me now is one of my fellow colleagues at The Guardian, Lauren Gambino. Good morning, Lauren. Good morning, Sabrina. It's nice to see you here. Usually yeah. it's just in our very quiet office. Yeah, a little later in the day. A little, usually. You can always, be as loud as you want to here. Always later in the day. Well, it's not that we're we're, we're not loud. The office is oh, not. Oh, I yet. understand. We, we, <laughs> Fair enough. I think Lauren and I are often the drivers of conversation there. Definitely. It's often very important that we unpack important events in uh, pop culture. and. If it weren't for us. Yeah. If it weren't for us, there would It'd be a pretty dead. A pretty dry, only politics office, I think. Yeah, a lot of dry Brits. (laughs) Who we love. (laughs) So, Lauren, you have been obviously covering a lot for us at The Guardian, uh, everything from Capitol Hill to the race for 2020, which is very much underway. Yeah, I think we're starting to see the end in terms of candidates declaring. (laughs) Um, We've got a few big holdouts, but I think, you know, the field is really starting to take shape. Yeah, We had a lot of action this week. Um, A lot of people declaring that they're not declaring. Right. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) which is a new trend, I guess. Uh, But we hadn't really seen that. It seemed like until now, everyone who thought they would run is running. But yeah, we saw this week the big one, I would say, obviously, Michael Bloomberg announcing yesterday that he's not going to run. Um, so he'll be interesting to watch with, you know, obviously with all his money, what he does with that, who he, how he, he kind of outlined how he'd be involved on sort of issues, gun control, environment. Um, he included voting rights in his op-ed. But I think it'll be interesting because he wrote that he was confident he could beat Donald Trump. But when he looked at the field, he was clear eyed about winning the nomination, <laughs> which I think could be a way of saying to them, you know, Democrats don't know what they want because if they want to beat Trump, I'm the candidate who could do that. Which almost signals he's looking for a more independent-minded candidate to pour all those resources you mentioned into. Exactly. Probably but not one... the independent. I mm. doubt we see him backing Bernie. I think it would be a, um, it would probably have to be, you know, someone more to the center, I'd imagine. Like a Biden, Biden or O'Rourke? Possibly. And those are the two holdouts. Those are the two Beto holdouts. and Biden. And what the are big they... ones. What are they doing? <laughs> it seems like they're leaning towards jumping in. It also seems like Biden will maybe determine some of the other candidates. You know, um, Terry McAuliffe is an example of someone who might jump in if Biden wouldn't get into the race or decides not to get into the race. We're also seeing maybe Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo, uh, suggested in, in an interview with The Atlantic that he might jump in if Biden doesn't. So there's plenty of people looking at at his decision, for sure. Um, and then Beto, I think, you know, he'll be interesting. He's got a lot of support still. Um, he could take the young people, and not take all of the young people, but he certainly attracts some of the young people. A lot of mm-hmm. his volunteers had come from Bernie's campaign. You know, he he would draw, I think, across the board from the candidates. Yeah, and I think a lot of eyes are on both of those two Big guns. Um, Beto probably more interesting that he's even considered someone who everyone's sort of holding their breath and waiting for because it's it's very rare that a candidate loses a statewide election and then is sort of immediately looked at as this potential front runner. Um, and and look, I think a Senate race is very different from 
um, being held under the scrutiny of a presidential campaign and what is going to be a very grueling and crowded primary. Um, all the gloves will be off, and a lot of the people who were supporting Beto in his quest to unseat Ted Cruz will now be up on stage debating him on policy, on experience. I think the experience factor with Trump in office is sort of a, a, a moot point. But but just right. on the on the uh, broader question of, you know, whether he's actually qualified to be to be president um, and to carry the torch for Democrats. Yeah, I think that's going to be a question that they grapple with. Um, it's it'll be interesting. I mean, he obviously is proven to be an incredible fundraiser which could power a campaign, um, mm-hmm. especially with such a fractured field, you know, that could, if he if he can still hold on to that, um, you know, that could put him sort of up there with Bernie. Um, but I don't know. It, I think there's really not a clear understanding of what Democratic voters want yet. <laughs> Do they want, I mean, you'll have the entire field. You'll have the Beto, you'll have, you know, the, the local mayor, all the way up to a Joe Biden who's, you know, been in office for decades and, was the vice president of the United States and a senator. So they'll get to choose. Um, but I, I think we don't have a sense yet of, of what voters exactly want. Do they want ex- I mean, they want obviously someone to beat Trump, but um, do they think a newcomer who's interesting, you know, like better, like, you know, optimistic and has been compared to Obama or do they want sort of tried and true? Yeah, right. We know where they want on like on policy in the sense of a lot of them. The reason the candidates are running on Medicare for all and some form of debt-free college tuition and some kind of jobs program. It's, there's obviously climate change, a progressive, a very clear-eyed progressive agenda, but who do they want to be the spokesperson for that agenda? You know, What characteristics are they looking for? And someone yeah. seems very much undeti- undecided. And I'm, how progressive they want to go on all those issues. You know, there's degrees of, mm-hmm. of health care. There's degrees of environmental um, action now. Uh, we, you know, not everyone's endorsing the Green New Deal, but everyone's got, you know, their own sort of climate agenda. So they'll have some degrees, I think, to choose between, but certainly, you know, more progressive. I, I think the starting line is more progressive than 2016. And part of that is because of Bernie Sanders, who you spent some time with over the weekend. Yes. Um, you were at his Chicago rally. Yeah, and, and back to Brooklyn. And back Bernie. to Brooklyn. <laughs> you've been crisscrossing uh, the country with Bernie, and you've been doing that for some time now. Um, you know, over the last couple of years, you've seen him uh, since his campaign in 2016 sort of become, in many ways, a kingmaker in the Democratic Party and really kind of outlined this agenda, this very progressive agenda um, that is now, as you said, a new baseline. Uh, There's different degrees, but Medicare for all is something that was crafted by Bernie and as the support of not everyone, but almost all of the major 2020 contenders. So what were your key takeaways from his uh, speech in Chicago? So in Chicago, I think he really tried to set the conversation on race and um, sort of um, social justice. He has been criticized for his comments on race and the way he talks about race. You know, it's been um, he's faced a lot of criticism for for seeing everything through an economic lens and for not prioritizing issues of race and identity, gender. Um, He tried, I think, to articulate in this speech that he clearly understands 
race is very central to economic inequality. Um, he, this is a city where he, he told the story of being arrested during a civil rights protest. He was really trying to draw this clear line from, you know, college student Bernie to to now and to sort of, you know, push back on this narrative that he doesn't understand race. Um, mm. Whether he's successful, we'll see. You know, he's going to be running against two prominent uh, black senators uh, who are, you know, sort of aggressively pursuing South Carolina. We see Kamala Harris will be back there for a third time this week. Um, and that's really where Bernie in 2016 was kind of mm. stopped um, by the Hillary Clinton campaign. You know, he had a good run in Iowa, won New Hampshire, and then got to South Carolina and Nevada, these really diverse, um, delegate-rich states. And he just couldn't. Right. And South Carolina, Hillary Clinton was certainly propelled um, with the support of black voters, especially black women. And that seems like who Kamala Harris is after. Uh, And then Cory Booker, of course, also courting the vote of African-Americans. And to your point, I think that's an area where Bernie will have to do some more legwork. uh, And he certainly uh, has a very diverse staff working for him. The first Muslim chief of staff. For Our buddy, yeah, fa- yeah, a friend Fashion of the sh- friend of Bill, friend yeah. of Sabrina, <laughs> <laughs> friend of the show, friend Faz- of the common man, Faz Shakir, who is just at the the political director for the ACLU, um, and he's got like a fairly diverse group of surrogates. Uh, yeah. but and um, to his credit, I mean that this the rollout was. I think as good as they had hoped it was, you know, it, it seems like a different campaign in some ways. Obviously, it's still Bernie. It's still big rallies and small dollar fo- fundraising. But uh, the campaign does seem a bit more professional. You know, they, they a well-oiled from, machine. Yes. Like <laughs> from the start. Right. Um, yeah. uh, so we'll see. But it does seem like they're very conscious of where they went wrong last time or, you know, their vulnerabilities. And they're trying to address that. They've come out very aggressive on the sexual harassment claims. Um, you know, they've st- instituted these new guidelines. So I think they really want to make sure that this campaign, you know, whatever happens, it's not about gender. It's not about it's not that they didn't try on, on, on issues of identity and race and gender. It's interesting because I think that the um, as you said, there's just no real clear consensus as to where we'll be. And so it kind of leaves space for all of these campaigns to really, for now at least, uh, set their own terms and, and, you know, kind of figure out their strengths and weaknesses. And at the moment, at least, we aren't yet in the place of actual, you know, fighting amongst themselves. Right. I mean, that's going to change. Make no mistake about it. There's many people that will um, definitely change. But for now, they have a little bit more more space to kind of get their yeah. campaigns in motion. I'm interested, you know, like some of the some of the big names, Elizabeth Warren, Kirsten Gillibrand, you don't necessarily hear as much about them. Um, and maybe that maybe they're happy to kind of Yeah. I wouldn't say fly under the radar. Certainly Elizabeth Warren is not flying under the radar, but they're not necessarily in the news in the same way or or as or certainly Elizabeth Warren who for once upon a time even as of last year was kind of seen as the de facto leader of the Democratic Party one of the like faces of the yeah. um, resistance to Trump is sort of not uh, I don't want to say not necessarily picking up steam it's too early but but you, if you yeah. kind of get what I'm saying there isn't really um, a great deal of focus on some of these big name candidates who are in the race. 
Well, I think with Warren, we talked a lot before um, Bernie decided. And I thought there was a big discussion of how they would, what they would do to each other if they were both in the race. And I think now we're kind of seeing that. He jumped in, he had this big splashy rollout, and he did, you know, prove that he had a lot of progressive support, at least up front and from, you know, and um, she so far hasn't had those, you know, eye-popping fundraising numbers that kind of grab attention. And, you know, we just, because she announced maybe so early, I mean, she announced in 2018, <laughs> granted yeah. on the last day. But <laughs> right. Um, so she's been in the longest. So maybe, you know, everyone sort of gets their turn in the spotlight. But I do still wonder um, if, you know, if if progressives just still get, or the pro- now progressives are so broad, but, you know, the sort of Bernie-type progressive who might have supported Elizabeth Warren had she run in 2016, if if they're sort of, you know, giving Bernie the credit for having jumped in. Um, when I talked to some people at his rallies this weekend, you know, I would ask them about Elizabeth Warren, you know, who's your second choice? Or if you don't support Bernie, who else are you looking at? And, you know, she would come up with a few, but she didn't come up that often. You know, people were pretty set on Bernie. And I, and I don't think their constituencies are exactly the same. I think, you know, I think she has, she can have a much different appeal if she wants to. But I guess that is to say he gets a lot of credit from certain people for jumping in and for challenging Hillary Clinton when, you know, w- there was a draft Warren campaign in 2016 and she decided not to do it. So whether that's fair or not, um, Kirsten Gillibrand, I wonder if she's still in the exploratory phase. Oh, right. You know? so maybe, right. She hasn't even technically yeah. launched. So maybe Man, she has hasn't... anybody ever launched an exploratory committee and then not not, no, not really? Um, Obama, Romney, they had exploratories. Right. Uh, one of the longest ones with Jeb was Jeb Bush because he just raised right. a crazy amount of money then, <laughs> right. which proved to be meaningless. <laughs> yeah, a hundred million dollars. Yeah. <laughs> wow, all for nothing. What was it? Shock and awe. Yeah. Um, well, with Kirsten, I wonder if, you know, if if she gets the chance to have a big splashy rollout of her own and does well. I've heard from people in Iowa from some strategists there that when she's on the ground, when she's in rooms with people, people really, you know, react to her that she's really warm and um and I mean, one of them like a mom. Uh, yeah. She's right, it's very much her pitch. Is, yeah, she, I'm, I'm like a, a mom, mom yeah. of like I don't know how many young kids, kid, young kids, says, but yeah. your average American household facing the same questions you do like it's kind of that pitch yeah i mean it's interesting because we've never really seen a campaign that is really focused or you know through the lens of a very like woman focused campaign and that's what she's running on and she's the woman candidate in the field of women candidates yeah you're Uh, right i mean elizabeth warren and amy klobuchar and uh, kamala harris said it's not that they haven't talked about gender at all and they certainly acknowledge that they had there's a historic nature to this field Um, And Hillary Clinton in 2016 did embrace more so than she, certainly much more than she did in 2008, the historic nature of her candidacy, but she wasn't running as a woman. And I I think that... And a mother. And and a mother. I mean, maybe it was, you know, she had just one adult daughter, so it wasn't quite the same, um, you know, case that she could make in that, through that lens. But, But as you say, Kirsten Gillibrand is, it's very almost like kitchen table issues and... Absolutely. Yeah, it's um, her, you know, sh- she has a lot of policies on, on children um, related to paid know, family leave, paid and... family leave. Um, then we also know her from work, her work on um, sexual harassment in the military, college campuses. Yeah, she so... was sort of the Me Too senator before there was a Me Too movement, exactly. which also is a double edged sword because then there are some people who are upset about her role in um, 
Al Franken's resignation. She was the first out the gate, kind of knowing that once she opened the floodgates, then it was over. She's very forcefully defended her decision and said, you know, she took a stance to to believe women. And once there were a number of allegations, she couldn't uh, operate within a double standard and say, if it's one of our own, we'll protect him. Right. Others say that she could have just called for an investigation. She didn't let that process play out. She just called for him to go. Yep. Um, and I, I actually, I wonder, but then I, I also wonder, would any of her opponents actually on a debate stage say, oh, well, you know, when Al Franken faced these uh, sexual misconduct allegations, you didn't give him a fair shot or a fair shake. I think that's not exactly also going to be, right. be a popular position. It seems like more of an issue with some wealthy donors and then some 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 segment of voters that I don't know is necessarily big enough to stop her from getting the nomination on that alone. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, maybe she gets a question about it from moderators or maybe there's a way of of asking a question, you know, because that kind of set, again, set another baseline for the party on what they accept and what kind of, you know, behavior they're willing to, you know, to sort of grapple with. I mean, she kind of, she did, you know, as you said, start start the process of pushing him out the door and... Um, you know, but fast forward to, to now, we still have like, a Democrat in Virginia who's been accused of oh. sexual, you know, so I mean, yes. you do see that now. I forgot Demo- about that mess in Virginia. <laughs> right, in Virginia. But it is a question about how far the Democratic Party will go. And, you know, Minnesota, you could argue the Senate seat was likely going to stay in Democratic hands. But now if you have, you know, this mess in Virginia that could go, go all the way down to, you know, fall, a, a state being controlled by a Republican, you know, you've sort of seen this. You know, standstill on action there. Um, right. So I don't know. So it's. I think it's an interesting question for the party, sort of writ large, is right. you know when they're trying to have the moral high ground in the Trump era. Yeah, you were talking about Justin Fairfax, the uh, oh, lieutenant me, yeah. governor <laughs> uh, of, yes, Virginia, of Virginia, who is facing sexual assault allegations, more than one. And this came after the governor, of course, Ralph Northam, <laughs> was accused of appearing in a photo where he was either dressed as a member of the Klan or wearing blackface. We don't know. First, he said it was him and apologized. Then he tried to say it wasn't him. And separately, the attorney general, Mark Herring, also Democrat, said that he may have worn dark face makeup, <laughs> which is basically it's just none of blackface. It's funny, but yeah. This but, whole... but, well, it's just... It's, 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 it's unbelievable, uh, yeah. I mean, that's something that was... You couldn't escape in the news just a few weeks ago. And in the world of Trump, right. of course, you almost forgot that that even happened and that that's still ongoing, that they haven't really resolved right. it. And none of them have gone. In some ways, Democrats benefit from the fact have benefited from the fact that there's so much with this president that that what was w- certainly um, no uh, minuscule controversy is been relegated to the background I know I feel um, like I just revived something from a year ago but actually it was just what a month or more it was ago. weeks ago yeah. it was a few weeks ago uh, I, I, I yeah. it was it was absurd um yes. and it still is and and I think you're right uh, Democrats will probably if they're if those uh individuals are still in office uh they'll probably face a great deal of questions at least I mean all law the, the presidential candidates called for them to go uh, but you know, the fact right. that they haven't gone was going to call into question, well, what do you do then to force them out? And, right. um, oh, you know, who is also not running, though, is Hillary Clinton, someone yes. that you and I both covered <laughs> in 2016. 
Yes. Why are people still asking if Hillary Clinton is running when there's been no signs whatsoever that she's running? She has said over and over again, I'm not Schick- running his head. <laughs> well, here's, here's, what I would, here's what I would say. Uh, and I, I talked about this a little bit yesterday. I mean, you have a lot of former Hillary Clinton staffers who continue to open the door or leave the door open, right? Uh, and Hillary Clinton has not had who? not... Anonymous sources. Uh. I mean, I've seen that story written so many times, and they just said, like, you know, she's not ruling it out. She may still get in. She did and, rule it out. And yeah, and, but and, she ruled it out so many times. Did she, though? Yes. Did Yesterday really? in an interview, she said, I am not going to be in the 2020 race, but I will be active and make yeah. my views. No. And, and, and that was and, the first time that no, she- No, last that week was... she also said on the podcast, I'm not running- I, I will be involved in politics, but I'm not running. Okay, I missed the one last week. Okay. But up, up until last week, I should say, she had not definitively ruled it out. Not definitively. Yeah. She had given kind of vague, like, yeah. answers that could always be interpreted. I mean, I didn't think that she was open. actually going to run. Yeah. Right? right? But she had not said, I am officially not running. And you still have these staffers running around hoping to get a job on a campaign saying yeah. she could still do it. She could still run. So, like. I'm I glad it, that we've just shut that we door. We shut that door. So, I mean, I think that the staffers, the thing about anonymous staffers is this is people who have their own motivations for having the story stay alive. But it's sort of like, totally, yeah, but the story's got written. The story's got written, but it's sort of one of those things where, you know, how, has has there been someone who's already run two times who has had to come out and say, I'm not running, like, just to, you know, just to make it clear, like, okay, no, no, no. I mean, Mitt, so Mitt Romney's actually good person to compare with because in 2016 he did like float another exploratory committee like he himself was floating the prospect of making another run and that and then eventually ruled it out right. after two well, people are still attempts. asking him if he's gonna primary trump yeah i know and so you know that's it but but hillary clinton after 2016 i don't think herself ever really opened the door it was people around her and i think that they may just be operating out of they wish she would Right. Or, you know, they just want to keep this story alive because they're not happy with anyone in the field and they feel like they've been scorned and that she's sort of viewed as this, you know, person who failed the party and it's all her fault that Trump's president. They want to kind of set the record straight. Like, don't you wish she was president now? Maybe. (laughs) Maybe there's people who, you know, just think she deserved to be the first female president after everything she gave to the party. And but I can't imagine running against the same guy that you just lost to again. Right. Oh, right. No, I I think that that, I don't think that there would be. I uh, I, I (laughs) I put yourself through. I mean, you know, the the, the obvious case that her supporters would make is like, well, she won the popular vote. She got two million more votes than he did. But that's not going to change the Electoral College per se. I mean, it came down to raise within margins of maybe 20,000 votes in states like Pennsylvania. But does that mean that she would now, you know, succeed? Right. I, I, I think she that's... definitely campaign in Wisconsin. We do know that. <laughs> <laughs> she would definitely make an appearance in yeah. Wisconsin. Too soon? Too soon, probably. Too soon. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's fascinating. I think um, I, I actually... I actually really don't know. I mean, the polls, you know, it's kind of, you don't want to put too much stock in the polls. I mean, a lot of them show Biden faring strongly, but he also has the most name recognition. Right. Um, I mean, Hillary Clinton was also favored to win the election, according to all the polls. Right. So we have to be really cautious there. But I do think, you know, I think Biden has a strong case for for when you're looking at the electoral map and how you win the Midwest. He's, you know, has his roots in Pennsylvania. He's... Cultivated this image, yeah, blue collar Uncle Joe. 
Um, so, but we're already seeing, you know, yesterday HuffPost had a story kind of digging up some old comments he made that, you mm. know, in 2019 sound really off key. <laughs> yeah, about how he, like, is trying to keep liberals off his... A lot of Democrats want to vote conservative, but they right. need to keep liberals off their backs. Now, the thing is, he made these comments in, like, the 70s or 70s. 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 I mean, I, it was really yeah. a long time ago. And so I did kind of think, like, I get what they're saying um, in the story that, that he's someone who's not viewed as, like, a true progressive and he's evolved but but someone who's been in office that long just by definition will have evolved well but that's i mean that's the thing in this so yesterday i was i was doing our daily live blog that we have and i looked into it and yeah 19, when he made those comments kamala harris was 10 cory booker was five <laughs> julian castro that was the year he was born uh, you know pete Buttigieg wasn't even born like <laughs> this field is so big and wide that you know that's what he's going to be up against. That's what he's going to be up against. Uh, but he'll probably point to a lot of people on this stage and say, have you been consistent your entire political career? career? Not a lot of them will be able to say yes. Lauren Gambino, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll be back after a break. Follow Lauren on Twitter at Lauren E. Gambino. Read her work at The Guardian. And stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for Bill on this Wednesday. It's been an action-packed show already, and we have a lot more to unpack with Matt Gertz, who is joining us in studio now. Uh, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. Thanks for having me. I just want to say, Matt, I think it's great that you came here after you threatened Michael Cohen on Twitter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this uh, is my. This is honestly, Matt Gertz, senior fellow at Media Matters, not to be confused with Congressman Matt Gates. This is one of my favorite running bits on Twitter. Is anytime that Matt Gates does something dumb, and let's be honest, that's most of the time. A lot of the time, yeah. Uh, everybody confuses him for Matt Gertz. Yeah, my Twitter mentions get pretty bad every <laughs> single time. It's really quite astonishing. I love that after he sent that tweet about Cohen, they got him in so much trouble last week, a year ago. Uh, Matt Gertz just tweeted, oh, no, what did he do now? <laughs> <laughs> well, and then I, I spent, uh, I think, probably more time than I should have responding to all of the different people who were tweeting mean things at me by telling them that it was the wrong guy. I think I got like 40 of them before I got bored with that. So At least you are not our friend Ryan Riley of HuffPost who looks a lot he looks like exactly. I Gates. Honestly, I think oh, more people should be talking about that. I have definitely done some side-by-sides on Twitter. 
Sorry, Ryan. I never thought about uh, we, that. Uh, we have a lot to talk to you about, including this massive report about Fox News and its relationship with the Trump administration. But first... This is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Uh, Sabrina, it's, it's no secret you're getting married. I am. You are getting married. Well, the Pew Research Center actually has some numbers on the marriage rates here in America. Oh, dear. About 50% of U.S. adults today are married. Now, that is down 9%. Uh, yeah, well, but 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 they point right. out that it's not that people aren't, you know, finding their partners and moving in and all that stuff because cohabitation is actually on the rise while mm. marriage rates continue to decline. They say back in 1960, marriage rates were at its peak. 72% of U.S. adults were married, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. But right. they're saying fewer people are actually taking that leap, but they are moving in with their partner. Uh, and and just seeing where it goes without actually committing to a ceremony and making it official. Yeah, I'm just doing it for the taxes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, I, you're right. There's a lot less I hope of, your fiance a, is of a societal, you know, kind of uh, pressure that you have to get married. I mean, but that doesn't mean that people aren't still out there looking for that person to spend the rest of their lives with. Yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they actually point out the number of Americans living with an unmarried partner uh, at last count is up 29% since wow. 2007. So people don't feel like they have to actually take the official plunge. Mm-hmm. You can just sort of take a little mini plunge, I guess. Uh, this past weekend, HBO aired their two-part documentary series, Leaving Neverland, about oh, yes. Michael Jackson. Uh, the fallout from that has been, or excuse me, yeah, Leaving Neverland was the name of the documentary. Uh, the fallout from that has been uh, not great, not great for Michael Jackson. Uh, in fact, there are now radio stations, news in both in New Zealand and in Canada, uh, that says they will no longer play Michael Jackson's music. They will just no longer play it at all. I wonder if the fallout's going to be as big as it's been for R. Kelly. And there's been a lot more, it's, it's just come out, this documentary, but a lot more silence from the entertainment industry. Yeah. Because they really did hold Michael Jackson up on this pedestal, knowing everything yeah. um, that that everyone has all whispered about for many, many, many years. He's also, now he's no longer alive, so maybe there's some element of, you know, not focusing on it in the same way, but I wonder if there will, in fact, be this movement against him in the same way that you saw with R. Kelly. You know, I, I, I'm i not sure. That's a good question, right? Because I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that Michael Jackson is dead and he left a, a lot of music that people really enjoy. Um, so I don't know if it's going to have the same effect. This is the Bill Press Show. All right, all right. Wednesday morning, and we are here with Matt Gertz, not to be confused with Matt Gates. Uh, you know, I was now I was actually worried that I was going to have a little bit of a slip-up because we've been talking about the unfortunate uh, share, similarities between your name and a certain congressman from Florida. That's right, the Florida First. The Florida First. Um, but, but you know, I, so there's been this explosive uh, report, investigation, and it's a really compelling read over at the New Yorker 
um, by Jane Meyer about Fox News and the ways in which it has been so intrinsically linked to the Trump presidency and frankly become a vehicle of this administration. Um, let me just let's start kind of big picture because I know we it's been discussed on the show this week. But what were you first and foremost just your key takeaways? I mean, I, I think that what this piece really does is put together a lot of uh, information that we all already knew that were in a lot of different buckets, some fresh color and uh, some interesting new facts, and really weaves together the narrative of how Fox News has become in the Trump era more or less uh, state TV, a vehicle for uh, the benefit of the president. Um, it's a uh, lengthy read, obviously, because there's a lot going on here from, uh, you know, different uh, Fox News hosts who play key roles as outside advisors to the president to different uh, former White House or, or former Fox News staffers who became White House aides directly uh, to uh, the work that uh, I do and, and that I, I spoke to Jen Mayer about uh in which the president uh, begins his days by uh, watching Fox programming and, and tweeting about it in real time and, and in that way shaping uh, the news cycle uh, on a more or less daily basis. So there's a lot there. Uh, there's a lot to unpack. Um, you know, it's, it's a really compelling read. I think everyone should take a look at it. They should. Uh, Jane Mayer, not Meyer, I realize. I'm always like, <laughs> how do you pronounce the name? But um, I, I think that there's, as you said, a lot... There, uh, of course, a lot of people sometimes even forget that Bill Shine, the communications director in the White House, uh, was formerly part of the leadership at Fox News and f essentially forced out following the sexual assault allegations against prominent individuals, including Roger Ailes and Bill O'Reilly. And not he didn't face Bill Shine allegations of his own in terms of sexual misconduct, but was accused of covering up. Right. He's uh, named in four different lawsuits mm -hmm. against Fox News as someone who was basically um, trying to make the problems go away. Right. More or less. You know, sweep them under the rug. And there was a big intimidation machine over there against the women who had alleged misconduct against Ailes O'Reilly and others. Um, and, and, you know, so you have him directly shaping the PR kind of machine at the White House. And then you mentioned some of the hosts who play this integral role. I mean, it leads the piece, it leads off with Trump having this very high profile visit to the border um, as part of his efforts to try and, you know, suggest there's a national emergency when there's not. But, you know, part of that whole, you know, laying of the groundwork to issue his declaration. And Sean Hannity is is there. Um with an exclusive interview, but also, you know, the press doesn't even have access to the traveling press doesn't have access to the president. And Sean Hannity is, is there, you know, playing a journalist in heavy quotes, but also actually there to counsel the president and effectively help dictate the way that he's going to make decisions around immigration. Well, I, th this is a this is a point that I think she really exposes here. Right. Like, I don't think that Fox News is state-run media, I think what we have is a media-run state. <laughs> like, I think that Donald Trump is taking cues from everything that, that Fox News says, you know? Well, he watches Fox and Friends each morning and then picks up stories. Uh, you, you see the timing of the tweets. Many times these stories are unsubstantiated, um, 
a lot of times they happen to do with some of these issues that have very much been at the heart of his presidency, immigration and crime and, uh, you know, uh, profiling of Muslims and, and claims around terrorism that aren't founded. And, of course, uh, with, with the Mueller investigation and claims of a witch hunt and, you know, following uh, uh, essentially, you know, these threads that are more like conspiracy theories that he then puts out there to millions of followers after they've been aired on Fox News. Right. I mean, personnel is is policy uh, here in Washington. And, um, you know, generally, the people who are around a major principal like the president uh, play a key role in shaping his worldview, in, in providing him with the information that he has and, and the options that are available for him to take. Uh, traditionally, that role is played by, you know, experts, uh, White House staff, uh, people who know things. Uh, in the Trump administration, it's not. In the Trump administration, the people with the clearest access to the president are the ones that he watches on TV every day and, in some cases, who subsequent, who he calls afterwards uh, to get more feedback and get more advice. I mean, two of the more prominent uh, supporters are arguably one who we mentioned, Sean Hannity, and the other being Tucker Carlson. Um and it, it 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 according to this story, the president has a scale, like a rating scale, that effectively um, is there to to rate their loyalty and their support for yeah, him. I think like some of the more uh, center uh, kind of centrist uh, anchors, like Brett Baer, are more like a six, versus someone like Hannity's a ten, <laughs> and Steve Ducey is a twelve. Is a twelve? Because obviously, <laughs> I mean, Steve Ducey will never say anything bad about the president. That's just not happening. Um, yeah, I, I mean, uh, this is obviously something he pays an immense amount of attention to. A large percentage of his brain is being taken up by whatever is on Fox News at any given time, uh, and I, I think that's pretty frightening. And what do you think is the impact of that? I mean, I think that's one of the, the you know this uh, report really unpacked uh, the intricacies of the relationship and, and the extent of the relationship. And there are just remarkable implications for uh, the impact that it has on the American public, especially with Fox News and its ratings and sort of being seen as, you know, the network of middle America. Sure. So, I mean, there are a multitude of, of cases you can point to. One of them that uh, Jane Mayer gets to the bottom of that I'm really glad she did was um, that back in uh, March of last year, uh, all of a sudden the president started tweeting that he was uh, going to not sign an omnibus, a piece of omnibus legislation that was supposed to, that everyone had assumed he was on board with. Um, that the White House had said he was going to support, but that he said that he was thinking about vetoing. Yeah. Uh, and there was a lot of questions time what was going on, what, why he had done that. What I said at that time was, well, he was watching Fox and Friends this morning, and there was, there was a segment that uh, morning where Pete Hegseth went off about how there was no wall funding in the omnibus and the president should refuse to uh, support it until wall funding was added. Uh, and Mayer has a quote from a former uh, White House official basically saying, yeah, I mean, he was listening to Fox News and they, they told him not to do it. And so uh, he, he turned on the bill. And so then you had, uh, you know, uh, Jim Mattis needing to explain to the president that uh, if he didn't support the omnibus, funding for the troops was going to expire at midnight. Uh, and so eventually they got him back on board. But this is a pattern that played out again and again last year, where you had uh, the assumption from Washington that the president was going to support legislation to 
uh, fund the government. Then people on Fox News would start telling him not to support it because it didn't have the wall funding. And then other people uh, in Congress, in the administration, had to walk him back uh, from that ledge. And then eventually in December, it stopped working. In December, the Fox people won. Uh, and we shut down the government for 35 days. For 35 days. Yeah. The national emergency declaration, too, was trumpeted by the likes of Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, at least. Um, who, who themselves, and Lou Dobbs. And Lou Dobbs, who, who at the same time, at some point, have not all of them, but have taken turns in the past saying maybe he shouldn't do it. There's constitutional questions. And then I think when they realized they weren't getting the wall funding, then sort of paved the way to say, no, go for it. This is the last resort. This is the only way you'll you'll be able to achieve it. Now we're in this protracted legal fight. Congress is voting. Of course, the Senate is expected to vote this week to, to terminate uh, the order. I mean, whether or not they will, we'll see. But um, And I think it's hard to understate the impact of that drumbeat from people at Fox who Trump intrinsically trusts, who he knows have always supported him, saying night after night, this is what you should do. This is what you need to do. If you don't do it, you're betraying your base. He's listening to that. And uh, what do you know of the dynamics at Fox News with the others who are not visible supporters of the president. Those uh, those like Chris Wallace or Brett Baer, some of the ones who rate lower on his uh, loyalty scale. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, is there an internal debate even at the network or is it is it sort of what it is? And then some of them are just there because they have a job and that's where they've built their shows and 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 they're sort of just going to try and continue to carve out their own identity while they are effectively part of what as we were saying is state run tv so this is something that fox's executives and pr people have been focusing on for as long as i've covered fox they always say you know there's a news side of fox and there's an opinion side of fox and people always complain about the opinion side but then we have these news people uh, who are largely fair Uh, And I think at this point, that is no longer a credible argument to make for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's quite obvious at this point that at the end of the day, uh, if Chris Wallace and and Shep Smith say one thing and Sean Hannity says another, Fox is still going to do what Sean Hannity says, right? I mean, all of the uh, reams of evidence that Jane Mayer uh, amasses about how Fox has become a propaganda wing of the president uh, have happened, uh, you know, while all of these people are still there. So they obviously can't stop it in any real way. Uh, I think, secondly, they can't really turn back the sort of bulk of the network's coverage. I think what we're seeing is a sort of new version of the Megan moments mm. uh, that we, you know, saw from uh, Megan Kelly, where there were these brief instances where all of a sudden a Fox host uh, would. Uh, do something that was against the broad narratives of the channel and get a lot of attention for that. And so you see Shep Smith saying it's not an invasion uh, coming from Mexico. You see Chris Wallace doing tough questioning of Sarah Sanders. It gets a lot of attention uh, from the rest of the media. It doesn't get a lot of attention on Fox because they have relatively low rated shows uh, and their coverage is not really bleeding into the rest of the network's coverage. Uh, And so, you know, You can see complaints here and there, but at the end of the day, Fox uh, sort of accepts that as part of, not not only part of the cost of doing business for them, but an asset, right? It is useful for the network to be able to say, we have some people who are credible, look at them, don't look at the sort of bigotry and conspiracy theories you see elsewhere on the network. 
And to your point, I think those uh, clips that often go viral of tough questioning by Chris Wallace or, you know, a very, you know, fact-based uh, monologue by Shep Smith, they're played on loop by other networks, but they're not actually played on loop by Fox themselves. Whereas, you know, when you have those big moments on MSNBC or CNN by their own anchors, you'll see them on every hour. I saw this um, versus Fox is not really interested in revisiting its own hard questioning. Right. Chris Wallace did a great job of pointing out that Sarah Sanders was lying on an immigration uh, talking point uh, several weeks ago, and it got played constantly on CNN and MSNBC, (laughs) but Fox itself totally ignored it. I mean, they just they are not interested in praising their own talent's work when it cuts against the imperatives of the Trump administration. And the uh, Jane Mayer piece also looks at uh, what former Fox executives have to say, and a lot of them acknowledge that this is now no longer by any means anything but, as you say, almost a wing of the White House, that this is a propaganda machine. So there are people who now, you know, no longer at the network are looking at this and saying that what they had previously sold as the division that you talked about, what they may have been a part of themselves, that any, you know, any belief that that is still a plausible argument no longer stands. Yeah, I'm a little skeptical about some of that because there's a certain amount of I have clean hands and now now things are bad. Like when Bill Kristol says, you know, I was at the network until 2012 uh, and back then, you know, it was fine, but now it's gotten crazy. Like, Bill Crystal worked with Glenn Beck, right? They right. were colleagues. Like that yeah. was peak. The Obama, crazy the Obama thoughts. years yeah. um, is pe- actually in many ways what set in motion. I mean, it's mm-hmm. what what you what has developed over time. I, I think, think people that- forget how bad 2009 era Fox News was. Sometimes, I, you know, the sort of the iteration has changed, but Fox Fox has always been a, a propaganda outlet for the Republican Party. It's just now it's fused with the White House itself, which is I think different, more dangerous. Uh, but it's not like it used to be good and now it is bad. Now, one of the revelations from this piece, uh, and that's where the the news side appeared to uh, fail itself, was that the Fox News was aware of the Stormy Daniels payoff and essentially passed on the story. Right. I mean, you know... Uh, the And apparently what, what Mayer reports is that the reporter was basically told, like, we're, we're just not going to do that here, uh, that, you know, we're not, we're not going to do something that hurts Trump, more or less. Uh, and the network denies that. But it seems pretty clear that they had the story uh, in large part and just decided not to do it. I think it's really interesting that that is a story that they did not do, but the... Seth Rich probably stole the DNC emails story is one that they were willing to do and then have explode on them and then say that they were going to do an internal investigation of what went wrong and then nothing ever came of that in any real way, no accountability. I mean, Fox News, the dirty secret of of the Fox News department is that they don't actually break a lot of news. It's difficult to think of a major story uh, that they broke in recent years, despite what I would assume is unparalleled access to the White House and Trump administration. But they just don't. I mean, think of all of the huge exposés that have happened about (laughs) Donald Trump in the last few years, and they happen at a truly shocking rate. Fox doesn't break any of them. Right. That's just not what the news department does over there. But these were, I mean, these were two big swings, one that they didn't take that would have hurt Trump and one that they did take that seemed obviously geared toward benefiting Trump. Right. And they and and 
it's it's just given the access that they have and given the resources that they have, highly implausible that that they are unaware of any of these stories before they break. I mean, it doesn't mean that they're necessarily onto all of them and you can't uh, undermine uh, the or downplay the investigative work of a lot of the reporters at the New York Times or the Washington Post or, you know, at CNN and all these Justice Department teams and other teams that have broken all of these very impactful stories about the administration. But one would imagine that there are reporters at Fox who probably do come by some of right. these stories and, and, I mean, I and think just I, happen to not uh, publish them or report them. I think it's telling that when the network is looking for uh, excuses for themselves, they point to t- talk show hosts and their interviews. They don't talk to stories that the network broke mm. ever. It just doesn't happen because what Fox's news department does is produce incremental takes on uh these sort of conservative pseudo scandals that are moving through various Republican investigations. They do Benghazi. They do, you know, the Justice Department is has a secret society that is trying to destroy President Trump. That's that's what they're there for. And they, so it's mm-hmm. grist for the uh, opinion people to talk about. And so they probably it goes without saying, as I am probably it goes without saying that they have a, a fairly tremendous impact on uh, Trump supporters and the Republican prime the Republican electorate. Uh, and when you look at the numbers for Trump, the one group that remains steadfastly behind him is Republicans. Now, sometimes there'll be some polls that show some of the support dropping off, but it still hovers around 89 percent on any given day. It's it's a fairly you know overwhelming majority that that stands behind him and, pro- and probably has Fox News as their primary source of information. But when you kind of broaden it out to the majority of the American public, uh, what impact are they having in shaping people's views? What does Where does their viewership stand today? Sure. So, I mean, historically, what we would say about Fox News is what they're doing is they're taking uh, stuff from the sort of conservative fever swamp, the blogosphere, and, and they're reporting on it and iterating and doing a lot of coverage of it. And then they're trying to move the story into the mainstream media, getting you know CNN and the New York Times and what have you uh, to see that there is a debate happening in conservative circles and then force them to report on it. What Trump does is he makes that much, much easier because instead what happens is Fox News will report on a story and then Trump will start tweeting on it. And then when that happens, because a, a president's remarks are considered inherently newsworthy, suddenly everyone else in the media needs to be figuring out what's going on as well. And they need to be saying, OK, what what do we have? To, what is Uranium One? And what, what do we have to say about it? What, what is going on here? And so I think largely what that does uh, is... Uh, it, you know, it moves the focus onto the terrain that Fox and Trump are most comfortable talking about, about, about the things that they want to be discussing. Mm. And it takes time away from other investigative stories that the uh, press could be otherwise talking about. You're right. We suddenly you spent some time talking about a prayer rug that was allegedly cited at the border. Right. When, or the, the sort <laughs> which, of... which within of itself was never substantiated rather than the actual issue at hand. About right. In, in the weeks before uh, the midterms, you have uh, a caravan. Yeah, right. The caravan the becomes the number one story in America. Why is that? Because Fox News was covering it. Then Trump, uh, the, then Fox News started telling Trump that he should use this as his major election issue. And he started tweeting about it and talking about it. And before you knew it, there was a ton of coverage of it. A lot of it was good. A lot of it was telling the stories of people in the, in the caravan themselves, pointing out when uh, Trump was not telling the truth about what was going on. 
But that has a cost because there is a finite number of minutes of cable news time or uh, column inches uh, to discuss uh, all of the issues. And, and instead of talking about what we might otherwise be talking about, we're talking about what Trump wants us to talk about. And for all the fact checking and truth telling in that coverage of the caravan, there are still those people watching at home who may have not otherwise known about said caravan and regardless of what is said on the news are going to come away with opinions that are more in line with the president and and suddenly have fears that even with all that storytelling around it will will not necessarily change their mind and instead be maybe more motivated to go to the polls because oh no there's a caravan that's coming our way sure if uh, you've got b-roll of of columns of migrants that and and the chiron says you know they're moving towards the border or you've got front page uh, pictures of that it's going to scare some people and it was impactful in the senate races uh, which is precisely why that was the closing argument the house was lost and the white house knew it and so what do you do you try and unseat those vulnerable red state Democrats who uh, were trying very hard to stick to the the discussion around pre-existing conditions in healthcare, something that House Democrats did very well. Uh, but but of course, when the national conversation is moved toward the caravan, they too were forced to come out and talk about why they would take a harder stance on immigration, which is like you said, what Trump wants everyone to be talking about. So real quickly then, as we kind of look into 2020, um, what are the lessons that have or haven't been learned in terms of how the media covers Trump? I mean, I, I think that uh, what we're going to need to have happen is editors and segment producers really thinking about the totality of their coverage in, in, a, in a way that they haven't before. Really thinking about, okay, is this story that Trump wants us to be talking about really the most important thing of the day? I think the real fear uh, is that something like the democratic primary process becomes consumed with, by uh, you know the media swirling in on Trump's comments about various candidates based on what he's seeing on Fox News. I think that'd be a real derailment of the entire process. Yeah, it's interesting. I actually, um, when I covered Hillary Clinton in 2016, I still remember something that her campaign said to me in my coverage about their kind of strategy against Trump and what they struggled with the most, and I think it's actually what newsrooms struggle with, um, is on any given day, there are 12 different things you can go, you can pursue with Trump. From from their perspective, 12 different things they could respond to or attack him on because that's how many outrageous things came out of the Trump campaign. And so the, the challenge becomes how do you kind of zero in on the one that's actually important? Because if you engage on four or six or eight or 10, one, you're allowing him to dictate the terms of the narrative, and two, it's almost all just, it all becomes noise. Right. And, and, and that's what the media has been struggled with, is you can have 12 or 15 headlines every day. How do we actually zero in on what matters and what what is going to remain a story through the course of the presidency, not just a sideshow or a distraction of the day. And are you going to decide that both candidates need to have the same amount of negative coverage? Because that's what ended up happening, according to the, the Harvard-Shorenstein Center uh, report uh, in 2016. And you had uh, a lot of negative coverage, e equally negative coverage of both candidates, but the Trump negative coverage was split in 15 different ways, and the uh, Hillary Clinton negative coverage was all emails, all emails all the time, and that sunk in. And that's uh, where you, know, you get into that... Uh, issue of false equivalency and just negative coverage for the sake of negative coverage where, well, we have to hold both accountable. So 
we have to keep talking about this, even though there may actually not be anything left to talk about. But that way we still seem like we are holding both candidates accountable when, frankly, it may just be that there is, as, as you know, a disproportionate amount to cover with one candidate. And sometimes that's OK. <laughs> that's that's the issue that I'm not sure that the media has learned yet. Right. When, when we talk about how to cover uh, both sides uh, of the political spectrum. Right. Because. There have been multiple stories now where, you know, still they want to try and drag Democrats for doing something that is not nearly as enraging or unethical or illegal as what the White House has done. And it's tricky, you know, in a primary process. I mean, obviously, Democratic voters will want to know about the foibles of their candidates. But what what you risk having happen is that there's like one narrative that coheres around each Democratic candidate. Uh, And then once we move into the general election, uh, that becomes uh, a major problem. And no one clear narrative around Trump, just a plethora of narratives around him that not not cancel each other out, but become more and more difficult for people to follow. Well, thank you so much, Matt Gertz, for joining us this uh, morning. Don't forget to follow his work over at Media Matters. And we're going to take a break. Uh, And joining us on the other side is my friend Pema Levy, great reporter at Mother Jones. So stay tuned to The Bill Press Show. Take The Bill Press Show anywhere you go. Download our free podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and catch the highlights from every show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. Sabrina Siddiqui here, political reporter at The Guardian, filling in for a bill on this Wednesday morning. And I always say this, especially when my friend Pema Levy is here, but I like to save the best for last. Uh, Pema, of course, is a political reporter at Mother Jones. Good morning, Pema. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, We have been talking about a lot this morning, including 2020, because it's unavoidable now. Everyone is running... Apparently this week, everyone's not running. (laughs) Everyone's all over the place. But um, one such person is Kamala Harris, a senator from California, who, um, you know, is considered to be one of the more formidable candidates, certainly. And um, there one thing that has come into focus, though, is her record on criminal justice. And you have a piece in Mother Jones that you wrote taking a closer look at her stance on the death penalty, kind of break down what you found in your reporting. Yeah. So I think the death penalty for Harris uh, is is interesting, one, uh, because I think that if she becomes the nominee, this is something that Trump will probably be talking about. He's a big fan of the death penalty. Um, But I also think that her position and record on the death penalty is in some ways kind of indicative of where she is on criminal justice reform more broadly and some of the sort of pitfalls for her. Um, Basically, she uh, began her career as opposed to the death penalty um, and has formally held that stance. Uh, But very early in her career as district district attorney in San Francisco, um, she stood up. She stood by that principle and refused to seek the death penalty when a member of a gang killed a cop. And she basically lost the support of every cop in the state. And it really made it hard for her um, to to move up the political ladder. And she ultimately did become attorney general in California and was reelected, um, but really took hits from you know the powerful police unions and law enforcement interests in the state um, and really had to sort of gain back that that support over years and years. And uh, and so once she became attorney general, she said, well, you know, I personally don't support the death penalty, but I won't fight. I will uphold it. I will enforce it. 
Um, and what that meant was that, you know, she actually had the opportunity, a federal judge in California uh, ruled against the death penalty, said it was unconstitutional in the state. And she appealed it. She could have let it stand. She could have just let the death penalty end in California, biggest death row in the country. Uh, and she didn't. She appealed it and it was overturned. Uh, and so I think that there's a complicated record there where she's trying to sort of thread this needle um, of saying I stand by my principle, but also not quite enough <laughs> to actually see it through. Um, and I think that that opens up to her to criticism on the left for not doing enough. Um, and then certainly if she becomes the nominee, you have Trump who supports the death penalty and who will frame her as weak for not supporting it. Soft on crime. Of course. Ironically, given that the whole uh, one of the issues, as you know, on the left is that she's seen as too tough on crime and having supported a lot of the uh, policies that help facilitate mass incarceration when she was attorney general. Uh, she's she's now come out with a much more progressive criminal justice platform, as is the case with many Democrats. Um, but she seems to have also tried to address this issue a bit head on in some of her interviews and some of her campaign rallies that I think trying to at least explain some of her decision making as as a prosecutor and where she was coming from and some of the problems in the system that sort of dictated her actions. I don't know if that's going to be enough. Yeah. But. I mean, I th she certainly is not running from her past as a prosecutor. Um, I mean, I think, you know, it's it's her campaign slogan, right, is for the people, which is right. sort of this like, you know, kind of smart, like double thing on the one hand, like, oh, yeah, for the people. And on the other hand, that's what you say in court when you <laughs> represent the state, right? You say Kamala Harris for the people. Um, so it's it's right there. Uh, and I think that, you know, again, it's like this tricky thing where you have a primary and you want to really show, um, you know, that you understand that this is a system that, um, you know, disproportionately harms people of color, um, that is often unfair, that prosecutors are uh, very powerful and often the drivers of injustice. Uh, and then at the same time, you want to be able to turn around in a general and say, I'm tough. I'm a prosecutor. And especially if you're a woman and especially if you're a woman, woman of color, color, I have to say it. You know, you need that that toughness, right? You you need that to be able to come to come through for you. I think that's going to be one of the actually really interesting aspects of how this all plays out, uh, because and this happened with President Obama too. When you are a politician of color, you are held to a different standard, and especially when it comes to issues affecting race and your own community, you ha you are almost held under this microscope where you are being held accountable for any of the systematic injustices that exist within that group and what are you doing to counter them and then on the other end of the spectrum you have people who are you know without granted without much uh, substance behind their claims suggesting that you are inherently weak that you know crime is rampant in the city of Chicago and that's something that you know Obama had to deal with a lot and you know, his administration had to deal with a lot as a narrative around him, especially in the conversation around gun violence. Uh, and now you have Kamala Harris, who's probably going to face, who I think probably was motivated in part by a, a similar need to have to prove herself, that I'm going to be really tough because if I'm not, people are going to say I'm I'm looking the other way and, and they're going to bring in all of these attacks that are clearly, that are clearly centered at least somewhat in race. And so you have kind of have to overcompensate. Yeah, I definitely think that's true. And I, um, you know, I think in some ways, I think that Kamala Harris is going to have some arguments that are pretty similar to what Obama um, had, at least in in his life story, which is, um, 
you know, I was a civil rights lawyer and, you know, I could have just fought the man in court, but instead I joined him and tried to change the system from within. Right. And and Kamala Harris is the same way. Like she also went to law school. She could have been a public defender. She could have gone the like outside the system, you know, trying to knock it down route. And instead, she very explicitly took the inside track. And it's just there's just two ways of doing it. There's not one right answer, of course. But, you know, she said, no, I'm going to be a prosecutor. I'm going to change the system from within. Uh, and that's that's really hard. <laughs> that's really hard. And of course, you have the double edged sword, too, like you just said, where on the one hand, there's the community you're part of, um, you know, the African-American community, Asian community, saying, what have you done for us? And then, so you have to answer to that. And then on the other hand, there's the idea that, no, don't worry, I'm not just here to help black people, Yeah, <laughs> right? Yeah. You have to also show, you know, that you're for everyone. I think Obama really struggled about, you know, uh, I think attacks based in racism saying, oh, you're just here to, to help black people. Right, and then you saw him become a lot more candid in his discussions of race in his second term, where I think he felt a lot more like he could embrace this issue head on. That's really when criminal justice became much more of a pillar of his agenda. And, and, and you know, there was a lot more attention also around these high profile killings of unarmed black men. And it began with Trayvon Martin and then uh, and then it shifted toward the law enforcement community with Ferguson and with Baltimore and with a lot of the events that you saw um, and that millions of people saw you know, on tape that made it much more part of the national dialogue. But it was something that his administration really sort of avoided in the first uh, term of his presidency, at least in terms of making it front and center. And I think that once they passed that reelection, the point of reelection, they were able to much more embrace the historic nature of his presidency for what it really meant and for the impact it could really have. Uh, So it'll be interesting to see how it plays out for Kamala Harris. (laughs) I mean, because you'll also have someone like Cory Booker, who you know is an is another candidate of color in the race who has made criminal justice a big part of his um, identity in the Senate, where he's been one of the lead uh, legislators in terms of crafting these really comprehensive criminal justice reform uh, packages. And so I think that the way that that debate plays out between him and Kamala Harris will be very interesting. Uh, as they are both also vying for support from communities of color, as well as just, you know, maybe more uniquely positioned to discuss this issue on that debate stage. Um, But, you know, so that's, I think is really interesting. I think everyone should go read your piece at Mother Jones to learn a little bit more about uh, Kamala Harris and her background. Another thing we've obviously been talking about today, not completely unrelated, I guess we were talking about prosecutors. (laughs) (laughs) Investigations. Investigations. Uh, Yeah. You know, who else is our prosecutors? Are the people who are like investigating this administration, this president, his family, his inner circle, his business. Um, And it's, it's out of the Southern District of New York. It's, of course, out of the special counsel and its investigation. And now increasingly it's out of Congress with Democrats uh, still newly in control of the House who I think it's interesting. I, I saw uh, one lawmaker make the point yesterday because suddenly you had this flurry of activity and you had Michael Cohen's three-day stint on Capitol Hill last week, a litany of allegations implicating the president and all kinds of wrongdoing, some of which was is, is alleged criminal activity, and then a list of 80-plus targets for uh, House Democrats across their various committees. And people said, well, where did this come from? And one of the lawmakers I saw... Uh, in an interview yesterday said, well, the government was shut down for the 
for 35 days, uh, you know, for much of a, the first month of when we actually, you know, took office in the majority. So this was always coming. It's just that we didn't have the chance to do anything about it until we finally actually got the government up and running again. And frankly, it's not like we weren't trying to pursue these matters in the minority. We just didn't have the power to do so. Um, but what do you think are going to be some of the most consequential threads uh, in the aftermath of Cohen's testimony? Yeah, that's that's a really good question. Um, I think it sort of depends. I think there's going to be like two buckets, right? Like there's going to be one where there are people that come forward and give information that leads to um, more hearings, more, you know, worst case for Trump, you know, indictments, um, you know, f- for other, um, you know, criminal charges to be pursued. So that's like one bucket, like the cooperation bucket. And then there's the bucket where they don't get what they ask for. Right. And then the question is, okay, so now we start going through the courts um, to sort of adjudicate this separation of powers situation and how much um, does the White House have to share uh, with Congress? Um, I think we're already seeing that on the question of uh, uh, security clearances. Mm. Right. Um, And I think we're probably going to see it on the issue of Trump's taxes. Uh, and so I think that there's going to be sort of like a, a two parallel things going here, which were some of the sort of things that I think we really want, like the taxes, are going to be the things that are not going to become apparent very quickly because they're probably going to end up in court. Um, and then there might be smaller things um, that might move on a, on a faster uh, track, uh, maybe especially in terms of uh, the president's uh, business. Right. And we've got some folks on uh, Twitter who have chimed in with uh, certain topics. And Joe Del Balzo has tweeted, not sure we can rely on seeing how things, quote unquote, play out in court. There are five justices who like to agree with him and he knows it, him being Trump. If our entire constitutional democracy depends on Roberts, well, then God help us. (laughs) Uh, Because a lot of these issues may well make their way up to the Supreme Court. Uh, executive privilege is something that the White House is trying to use as an excuse to withhold anything and everything. Uh, but it, but that's what it's interesting because it does protect certain conversations in the White House, uh, especially since the president took office. Although even there, not everything. I think legal experts said that there's no reason why Jared Kushner's security clearance and the conversation, the the reasons uh, upon, under which it was granted, that that executive privilege protects that process. Um, Right. But, uh, you know, it, it certainly does not apply to the president's business and his personal dealings before he took office. So a lot of any of this uh, alleged insurance fraud that Michael Cohen suggested or bank fraud in his testimony where he said the president inflated then private citizen Trump inflated his assets. None of that would be covered under executive privilege. Um, now, if the president was trying to cover those up in office, that's a separate question as to you know how they're going to fight any documents um, that they may have to 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 kind of look at the inner workings of of how he actually divested from his businesses, which he didn't, and all of that. But right. but you know, a lot of what Cohen said and what Alexandria Casio Cortez was questioning him on essentially laid the groundwork for subpoenaing his tax returns. Yeah, and they're going to fight it. It goes without saying. But I'm not sure what the grounds would be for them to 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 make the case that prosecutors in the Southern District of New York, for example, should not be able to access a lot of the documents that will 
essentially hold the keys to his financial dealings before he took office. Yeah, I mean, I think that the essential principle here is, so there's an old sort of antiquated law uh, uh, that I think the tax return issues may fall under. And so some, of, you know, there will be different statutes that different documents requested might sort of fall under. But I think like a broad umbrella sort of way to view this, and I think that sort of Nixon, Nixon set this precedent, is if you need executive privilege to have high level, you know, secure discussions, fine. But if you need it to cover up a crime, <laughs> you can't do that. Right. <laughs> like, that's where we sort of draw the line here. Like you don't use the white, you can't use the White House as your you know shield in order to uh, cover up crimes or commit new crimes. Uh, and I think you know broadly that's what we're talking about. For example, with presidential power and how it can be used, right? Like the idea is, yeah, you can fire Comey and that you can fire any official, but you can't do it if the point is to cover, cover up, a up a crime. <laughs> so so I think like that's sort of something that we're 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 working with here and I and I think that it'll have obviously implications for Trump and then obviously implications for every president after him. Right. And part of why the White House is trying to invoke executive privilege for so much of this is because they are relying on what um you know that one uh, listener was was alluding to that this will just play out in the courts. Well one that's just going to take a very long time. Yes. And and then, you know, there's an election happening uh, a year and a half from now. Uh, this is something that could take so long. Some of some of it, not all of it, but some of it could take so long that we don't even know if Trump will still be president. We, we just don't. It may be it may well be stuff that would be uncovered if and when he's already reelected. Uh, and so they they're hoping this can just kind of play out in the background. For sure. And in the meantime, he can just frame all of this as he has done time and again as a witch hunt. In fact, the president, when asked about the uh, flurry of investigations uh, that Democrats are in the process of ramping up against his administration, had this to say to reporters at the White House. Essentially, what they're saying is the campaign begins instead of doing infrastructure, instead of doing health care, instead of doing so many things that they should be doing, they want to play games. It's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to our country. I'm not surprised that it's happening. Basically, they've started the campaign. So the campaign begins. Well, <laughs> I mean, they are doing Medicare for all. So that's like I'm interested because really I don't I'm, I'm interested <laughs> in the, the they aren't doing infrastructure, which was like a big promise of the president's that he campaigned on. And I haven't really seen him do infrastructure. So. I mean, also Republicans control the Senate. They can, well, they they also, can do yeah. infrastructure well, and Republicans controlled both chambers of Congress for the first two years of his presidency, and they didn't do infrastructure or health care. In fact, they failed to do health care. <laughs> they, they failed to repeal and replace Obamacare, their long-standing uh, goal that they campaigned on right. ad nauseum. So, uh, By the you way, know. If, I, if I could just interrupt really quickly, because you talk about unfulfilled promises from uh, Donald Trump, uh, there is a new story. U.S. posted a record-breaking $891.2 billion merchandise trade deficit in 2018. This is despite Donald Trump's America First policy, of course. Uh, so, you know, um, this is not great news for Donald Trump. This is among the tariff and trade policy stuff that he's been talking about for seems to be years now. Uh, it has not worked out very well for him. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I, go ahead. I was going to say, like, I, I do think that on some level, Trump has a point um, that Democrats already already know and already demonstrated in 2018, which is that you don't actually win just by attacking Trump. Right. Right. You do it by running on issues. Uh, so, you know, on some level, like, yes, like 
Democrats do need to move on health care, which, yeah. again, they are doing. They're introducing this Medicare for all bill. Um, you know, they do need to push on these issues, these, you know, kitchen table issues, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, economics, health care, opioid crisis, um, price of drugs, all of these things that people really do care about. Um, and I also think that, you know, the best way to show that their investigations are worthwhile are to be able to point to some results. Right. Right. And so they'll have at some point something from Robert Mueller. Um, they have all of these indictments. And then I assume some of these sort of threads they're pulling from Michael Cohen and the other documents that they're going to get will lead to some things. But certainly, like, when you have results from your investigations, then you're, you could, that's how you say it's it's not a witch hunt. Um, but on some level, Trump hit at something that's kind of true, right. which is that you win by, by telling people what you're going to give them and not what you're just against. And there's certainly going to be a need to balance legislating and investigating. And as you note, they are voting on uh, or planning to vote on legislation that includes Medicare for all. They had their uh, they're, they're poised to vote, I think, Friday on their sweeping anti-corruption bill, H.R. 1. Um, and that and they've done voting rights. Uh, that, that includes voting rights. It would make um, uh, Election Day a federal holiday. And and it's something that the Just White House is, of course, finance, threatened yeah. to veto. It won't likely pass the Republican-led Senate. But it's a it's a statement of a priority. Um and that's just, you know, I'm sure there'll be I'm sure there'll be also efforts to uh, rescind the president's tax cuts and all kinds of other uh, issues that will come forward. It just so happens that, you know, people, they also campaigned on restoring oversight. So I think there is a lot of flurry of activity as they've only now been able to uh, be in the majority and sort of set in motion some of these investigative threads. But. I expect that they're going to try and find that balance. It's part of why they're very reluctant to talk about impeachment. And, and well, Democratic leaders are very much like, hold your horses. We're not there yet. Also, we don't have the votes in the Senate to convict. So Nancy Pelosi has been very clear about that, that, you know, right now our, that's not our focus. And I think they're very mindful that that is not going. It's something that helps corral the base, uh, but it's not something that is going to necessarily help them win in in 2020. Yeah, yeah. I think I can't I I wish I could remember now, but one of the the lawmakers in the Cohen investigation or Cohen hearing, you know, the the Republicans kept saying whenever they got the mic, "Oh, you know, I can't believe we're doing this instead of like tackling the real issues." And I can't believe it. one one of the women on the Democratic side said, "You know, luckily we can walk and chew gum at the same time." Right? So like the point being like we can do these investigations and then we can also do the legislation. Um and they just have to, you know, the the, the investigations are are you know, the reporters like to write about those. They grab right. headlines. And so you need they need to be able to, to balance it out and to convey to their constituents that they are doing both of those things. Right. And I think that some of these, I don't think that they're all equal in scale. Um, you know, they have this massive list that they put out. But I think there will be some key uh, investigations that are really front and center. Russia and the potential collusion between the campaign in Moscow. What really is the story between the president and Vladimir Putin and how does that kind of cut at the heart of the Russian investigation and then the finances and the business dealings and the hush money. And, you know, that will kind of be probably the two biggest uh, elements that Democrats go after. And then a lot of these kind of smaller uh, pieces from security clearances to, you know, conflicts of interest in the White House and, and the cabinet and misuse of taxpayer dollars and, 
you know, all of the the, the many, many, the Time Warner AT&T deal that the president may have tried to block because he hates CNN. Like, you know, a lot of that, I think, won't necessarily be front and center day after day for Democrats. They're just sort of saying, like, we're also looking at all of this because this is how much there is to look at. Um, and it'll be happening more so in the background. And to your point, reporters like to talk about it and write about it. But they're probably going to have to find a way and continue to find a way to make sure that's not all that's being talked about. Yeah. And actually, you see, I think in the 2020 candidates, not a whole lot of discussion around this. No, no, not at all. I mean, I, th- I think they're they're talking about, you know, their policies and their you know vision. Um, and I think sort of Trump is sort of the elephant uh, in the room. Um, but but, yeah, I think there's like a pretty clear consensus that, you know, it's not just about Trump. Right. It's it's about, um, you know, what vision they have for the country and, and how they're going to. Right. I think someone said everyone on the stage is going to be an anti-Trump candidate. So you can't be running as the anti-Trump candidate. (laughs) Right, right. Eventually, I think we're going to get to the point where the question is, who can who is has the best argument for why they're the one to defeat Trump? Because I do think that that's what voters are going to want to hear at some point. But I don't think we're there yet. I don't think we're there yet. Peter, you have any predictions? to? No. Um, Oh. Sorry. Do I have predictions? No, I don't think I do have any predictions. I just kind of want. I, I'm I'm really interested and excited, uh, gen- genuinely, uh, and and seeing how this primary plays out because it could go any number of different ways. Yeah. Uh, and the Democratic Party is in a very weird spot right now. Yeah. Right. Like, do you want to go with someone who you think is safe, or do you want to go with someone who you think might be kind of radical? Uh, did what did we learn from the 2016 election? Is this going to be another 2016 where we're all talking about the obvious people and there's someone in the shadows who we don't even know about who's going to end up being the Democratic nominee? Sure. It's possible. No one knows anything. Totally. Pema Levy, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Don't forget to follow her on Twitter at Pema Levy and, of course, read her work online at Mother Jones. We will be back tomorrow, so keep on watching, keep on listening to The Bill Press Show, and thank you so much for joining us this morning. This is The Bill Press Show.